Well, hey there, Gateway Church. Great to be with you again. Uh, we've been getting to know each other over the last few months, if we didn't already know each other. So I, look, I want to jump right in. Uh, or as my uh, wife, Louisa's Italian grandmother would say, no muck around. So let's no muck around. And uh, how about if you've got your Bible or your Bible app handy, grab that and uh, pop it open to Exodus chapter 34. This is the second book of the entire Bible, Exodus chapter 34. And I'm going to drop us into the most quoted passage from the Bible in the Bible. It's kind of like retweeted more than any other passage ever in the Bible. It's like, it's like the Bible's very own greatest hit within the Bible, kind of a meta concept. But it's something that, that God himself said Excuse me, five, in fact, it's five facts that God said about himself. Critical facts that he wanted the people that he was speaking to at that time to know these things about himself. And then the fact that this very thing, the, these five facts about God were re-quoted and re-quoted and re-quoted and re-quoted suggests that it wasn't just the people that he was telling them at the time that, that, that it was important, but rather that he wanted everybody, generation after generation after generation to know these things about him, including us and including the generations to follow. Now, the people that he spoke to, here's the backstory. He spoke these five facts to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel had been held captive collectively uh, in Egypt, uh, by the Egyptian uh, pharaohs there, held in slavery for hundreds of years until finally God used a guy named Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And in fact, God had promised them a land. So he wasn't just taking them from somewhere. He was actually delivering them to somewhere. And so we, we catch them, this nation of Israel, while they were on this journey, they'd, they'd left Egypt, but they hadn't yet arrived in the land that God had promised. And they were getting a little bit antsy. They were getting a little bit irrational. I mean, at one point, they actually built a golden calf, like a, like a, a cow, a golden calf, a statue. <laughs> and then they said to the statue that they just created, behold, the God who brought us out of Egypt. It's like, what? I mean, here was the final clue that things were about to get unhinged. And so God says, hey, Moses, come here. We need it. We need to have a chat. And God said this to Moses, Yahweh. He's, he's saying, the Lord. He's like, hello, Moses. It's me. I'm here. Not the golden calf the one that delivered you from Egypt and that's promised you a land over there. The God, and I, and, and here's the five things that God talked about. Not just that I'm God in this kind of, I'm God. He broke it down. I'm the God of compassion and mercy and I'm slow to anger and I'm filled with unfailing love, thank God, and faithfulness. And here's the good thing about God. God is not, into gaslighting. If he says it, then that's true. He's not trying to shade the truth. He's not trying to quote 
alternate facts? No. So when he says these things about himself, we can actually take them to be truth, to be facts. So the title of today's message is this. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Yep. The title, so good, so nice. We're going to play it twice. The title of today's message is this. Who is your daddy and what does he do? And I want to drill into the second of these things that God declared about himself, that he's the God of mercy. Now, this word mercy can also be translated grace, can also be translated favor, sort of interchangeable and and overlapping. So I want to actually focus on this concept of favor, that God is someone who demonstrates and shows favor. Now, simple definition of favor, because it's not necessarily a word we use a lot. I don't know the last time it came up in a conversation you had, but to say favor is, the definition I like is to endorse. And it's kind of like, if you write a book, uh, before that book's published, you'll go looking for someone to write the foreword. And what you'll typically look for is somebody that's ahead of you in the book writing world, someone who's uh, seen to be having more authority and more experience. And what you're asking them to do is, is to endorse you. And by endorsing you, the hope is that, that you'll get a leg up. I mean, you've still had to do the work. You still had to do most of the heavy lifting, but they'll give you that extra acceleration. Uh, Oprah Winfrey, uh, when she had her TV show and also her magazine, she had a book of the month club. And someone that wrote a book that came on her radar, you know, it might have sold okay. We, we don't know, but let's, you know, chances are it might have sold a few thousand copies. But when Oprah made that book, her book of the month, she was effectively giving her endorsement. She was effectively showing favor towards that author. And it was not uncommon for that, for that book each month, whichever the book was, to sell 200,000 or a million copies simply because it received Oprah's favor. And so because this is who God says he is, this is actually what he does. Because of that, we can expect God's favor. And I look, I have loved the topic of favor, but I've never preached on it in 20 years as a professional Christian. And here's why. You know, people, when you start to talk about this idea of God showing favor, it can get a little bit wonky real, real quick. So it's important to understand firstly that God's love and God's favor are not the same thing. God's love is something he gives unconditionally. God's love is something he shows to people who ever want to put themselves in a relationship with him. They will receive his unconditional love. And we can take no credit for that. It has no bearing on our behavior. It's given to us as a free gift unconditionally. But his favor is not the same as his unconditional love. And I'll talk about more on that later. Another mistake and things that people can get wonky about when we talk about favor is that then, then they start to think, well, only good things will ever happen to me. If I'm 
expecting God's favor. Nothing bad will ever happen to me. It's only ever going to be sunshine and unicorns. And I'm never going to be disappointed again. Well, no. And the third thing when we start to talk about favor is people too often associate that with the idea that God's favor simply boils down to newer, better, bigger, shinier, and it, and it and, and, and pertains to stuff. And the person with the stuff is obviously the person that's receiving God's favor. And yet that's not the purpose of fa- favor at all. I mean, it might, God, look, God might show us favor with giving us something newer or better or shinier or bigger. But the ultimate purpose of God giving us his favor, of him endorsing us, of him giving us a leg up, is to actually bring him glory in such a way that we recognize, just like the the, the author would recognize from Oprah, is that I can't take any credit for that endorsement. I'm receiving the benefits of that, but all the glory have to go to God. And we need God's favor because the levels that God's calling us to and the purpose that God's calling us to live, we're going to need some assistance. We're going to need a leg up. And here's some of what God's favor can actually cause in our lives. It can open doors that we can't open. It can cause good breaks to come our way. God's favor can cause the right people to come our way, can get you the business deal that you bid on can get you the promotion that you may not have actually on paper been next in line for, but God endorsed you. God showed you his favor and you'll get the benefit of that, but you can't take any credit for that. Now, the topic of favor came onto my radar like front and center around 20 years ago. And I was reading... uh, a passage from Genesis, right in the beginning, uh, the origins story in the Bible, reading something and it literally just about knocked me off my seat when I read it. And the context of what I was reading was uh, that God, you know, he created the heavens and the earth and then his most majestic creation was the thing he was the most proudest about was creating humanity. And despite starting things as a perfect creation of God, the creator, we started to mess things up. Humanity started to get off track. So much so that God, despite giving us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a warning and staging intervention over here, he got to the point where he couldn't take it anymore. And he had decided that his best play was to take the nuclear option and just destroy everyone and everything. Pretty extreme. And I kept reading. And then in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, I read these eight words. But Noah found favor with the Lord. God's about to take the nuclear option but decides to give Noah and his family a pass. 
And he asked them, he said, told him he was going to flood the earth. And he asked Noah to build him a boat 140 meters long, which was insane to pitch that to Noah for two reasons. One, Noah wasn't a builder. You'd think if you're going to ask someone to build something out of wood 140 meters long that you probably pick someone with a little bit of experience in that field. No, Noah had no experience as a builder. And the other reason that was insane is that it wasn't even raining. Who and why would you need a boat, an ark, a ship, a vessel, 140 meters long, dry docked in your front yard? And despite that, Noah said yes. And so I'm reading that and I'm like, God was, was going to take the nuclear option, but he gave Noah and his family a pass. And the only description he gave was that Noah found favor with the Lord. The good thing is that favor leaves clues that you can almost always see something upstream that led to somebody receiving God's favor in a particular moment in time. So I kept reading. I zoomed out. And this is some of what's said about Noah. In verse 9, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. He was righteous. He lived right. He didn't compromise. And he prioritized his relationship with God above other things. And then in verse 22, so Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. God had an insurance because he knew Noah's heart that whatever he asked of Noah, Noah would do it without cutting corners, without saying, oh, what do you know, God? Obedience. Noah demonstrated obedience with the ark, but he had been demonstrating obedience throughout his entire life up to that point. So in the few minutes we have remaining together, I want to zoom in on this topic of obedience. And it does not sound sexy. You're like, oh, you don't get to tell me what to do. Well, God does get to tell you what to do, but it's incumbent on us whether we want to say yes. And you can say no. But when God asks us or instructs us, it's because he's got purpose waiting. He's got better waiting. And so anytime that we say no deal, I'm not going to obey you, God. You can't tell me what to do. Fine. But we and the purpose God's put us on this earth to accomplish gets blocked as well. So let me drop us into three things that Jesus taught that are areas that are universal, that we as Jesus followers, all of us, are instructed to obey. So in Luke chapter 16, I'm going to drop you right into there. Luke chapter 16, I'm going to drop us in to the New International Version. Uh, about three things, three areas that Jesus instructed us to obey Him in. And spoiler, they all come with a promise attached. Mm. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever was with, is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest 
with much. See, too many people hope that God's going to treat them like an irresponsible grandparent. Like it doesn't matter what you do, doesn't matter how much you, you disobey, they're still going to give you what you want. God doesn't waste resources. He's looking for whether we are trustworthy in what we currently have. And by being trustworthy in what we currently have, we're demonstrating that we're poised and ready and we can be trusted with some more, some more opportunity, some more responsibility, some more favor. Many years ago, uh, I was part of a church, and uh, one of the in one of the teams in in this church, um, one of the guys that was sort of like second or third on the food chain in this team, uh, they were discovered as saying that they hope one day to lead that team, which is great. I mean, if you want to take on more responsibility, um, brilliant. And and yet they their next sentence was. I've got a lot of great ideas for how this team can be more effective and I'm going to hold on to them until I get to be the leader of this team. Well, no surprise to learn, they never got to be the leader of that team because it came out that they were holding back and, and, and we knew, why would we trust you with more responsibility if you're not even bringing the best you have at the level that you're currently operating in? Be trustworthy with little, little defined as what you currently have. Even if you think you deserve, what do you have in your hand now? And that's going to give God a clue as to whether he can trust you with more. And then Jesus went on to say, so if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And you'd be like, huh? I thought worldly wealth was true riches. And Jesus like, no, not in my kingdom it ain't. It's not unimportant, but it's not the most important. And yet he actually <laughs> lays out that if we are trustworthy in handling money and stuff, that's a clue as to whether we're someone who can be trusted with handling the more precious things in life, like people and responsibility and opportunity. You know, this was the last message I taught at Gateway, keep the change. And, and I mentioned we teach about managing money and stuff every single year because whilst it's not the true riches, it's not unimportant. And it demonstrates whether we are someone that can be trusted with the true riches of God's kingdom. It's a gateway, if you like. See what I did there? And finally, Jesus says, and if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And God buried my nose in this one years ago. One of my friends at the time, uh, he was living in a rental property, wasn't married, living in a rental property. And uh, I, I checked in with him uh, one day and just said, you know, typical Aussie question, hey, so what did you get up to on the weekend? And he said, oh, I, I spent the weekend uh, putting in reticulation at my house. And I said, your house, don't you rent? And he says, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm renting. And I put reticulation in. And I said to him, uh, 
did the owner of the property like pay you know for the equipment and pay you for your time and he's like no no and i'm like huh did he contribute anything to it and my friend said no i, I got his permission to do it but i paid for all the materials and i did all the work and now this property isn't reticulated and i said to him are you completely bonkers this isn't your house and he very matter-of-factly quoted jesus luke chapter 16 verse 12 and he said mark i want to own my own house sooner rather than later so i'm treating the current house that i live in that i don't own as if it was my own and trusting that god himself will show me favor and give me the opportunity to buy my own house. And no spoilers, that is precisely what he experienced in his life. So, hey, friends, that's a flyover of favor. Um, and uh, there's plenty more to that topic, um, but uh, certainly hope that you've benefited from this. It's a great honor for me to be with you on this journey together. And I look forward to the next time I speak. And I can tell you, it's going to be a pretty juicy topic. See you then.